Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by two of my favorites, but one is a change of pace. So quickly, Natasha, hello, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm fresh off of seeing you, so how could I be bad at all or tired even? I'm neither of those things. Yeah, I mean... I'm definitely not tired because going away for weeks is how I rest. (laughs) But we're joined today uh, not by Marianne Azevedo, our dear friend who was on vacation this week, but we've instead gone around and stolen from one of our rival podcasts internally. We have with us Anita Ramaswamy from the Chain Reaction crew. Anita, hi. Hi, how are you? Well, Alex, when you said two of my favorites, I thought you were going to say, but one is more favorite than the other. So (laughs) (laughs) I was like bracing myself for that. (laughs) I, I mean, like, let's be clear. No one loves all their children the same, but it's also rude to discuss in out loud and also I think ruder to discuss in a recorded medium. So if I was going to do that, I would probably just, you know, DM Natasha and say, Psst, you're my favorite, but uh, that's not how you record a good show. Anita, last time you were on Equity, you were so good that TechCrunch just gave you a podcast. So this time, I wonder what's going to happen to whoever's listening. Don't, don't set the bar too high. It's <laughs> post-disrupt. I'm struggling a little. I think we're all a little worn out more than usual, but I am excited. Okay. So because you brought that up, I'm just going to tell people I've traveled so little in the last three years that my ability to like handle jet lag has gone to zero. It's like not drinking for 10 years and then doing like six shots. You're going to fall down. So I'm like oddly tired this week. I just can't quite get back up to speed. Is it just me or are you also from that too? Yeah, no, no amount of coffee has been sufficient for me. (laughs) Seriously. And like, can we talk about the fact that Becca is just in India right now? Like she's unfazed. I am very phased. And even it's a three hour, I'm in Jersey for people who don't know. So it's a three hour time difference. I'm back with Anita and Alex on the best coast. So honestly, that that East Coast, West Coast flight is just absolutely brutal. It's, you know, right around hour four when I really start yeah. thinking like, okay, like we should be landing sometime soon, right? Oh. And it's like, no, two more hours to go. Like, nice try. That's so true. Ugh. I hate it when you pull up the map, you're like, Chicago, what? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> absolutely not. How dare the world be this large? And then like, I look down and I'm like, I've read my economist. I've eaten my kid cat bar i've drank my fizzy water which is my standard airport like snack list yeah and then i'm like great now what and then i just look around i'm like oh i hate all these people i hate united i hate life so if if we do sound fractionally more tired today it's because we actually are but there's a lot to get through this week we're going to talk about launch house uh sequoia india and edtech over there be real which is a social app that people are talking about we're also going to riff on potential layoffs at twitter how big they might be there's some news out recently that we're going to have to touch on there. Then because we have Anita on the show, we're going to talk about Apple cracking down on NFT functionality inside the App Store. Uh, Essentially, all your app are belong to Apple. And then finally, we're going to talk about my favorite thing in the world, which is China. And we're going to talk about what's going on with Chinese startups, viz the latest Chinese Communist Party Congress. So to kick off though, Natasha, uh, Launch House, to my surprise, is back in the rundown. Yeah. So it's been a little over a month since allegations of harassment and assault first came out against Launch House, which is a venture-backed founders club. It's just trying to be an IRL YC that creates hacker homes across LA, SF, and, and New York, as well as other places. So Vox had this huge investigation. And the reason it's in the news this week, a month later, is because they um, are having some changes with how they're conducting their investigation. A former employee noted that Launch House was using the same law firm for both their defamation kind of claims that people were defaming them and sending threats. And, you know, I got an email from their lawyers as well. And then also that same law firm is going to be conducting their, quote, independent third party investigation. Sounds and so, really independent. Yeah. <laughs> 
Right. And so I actually asked my my lawyer friend and I was like, hey, like, is this illegal? I mean, obviously it's not, right? Law firms probably aren't going to do that, but they did kind of give like an optical, it was an optical faux pas is how I would describe it. The fact that the same client, even if it's two separate teams, is kind of shared over contrasting incentives. So they split with the law firm. They're not, they're longer going to be investigators in this case. There's two forms of conflict of interest out there. One is purely visual and one is more material. Yes. And a lot of people spend time trying to avoid even the possibility of someone thinking that there might be a conflict of interest. I, I would say this is actually both. It looks bad and it possibly could have been actually a conflict of interest because if you're paying someone to do one thing and to do another thing, it might influence what they actually choose to do and say. So I think it's good that the startup did this, but also bad that they didn't see the issue in doing it to begin with. Yes. I, it's it's kind of out of this members and people's pay grade to like be like, hey, this doesn't sound right. And I'm surprised, honestly, the law firm didn't bring up the optics. I will say we don't know the exact terms of the investigation on if this law firm is going to be conducting it on behalf of who and talking to which people. So a lot of questions. I do think it's important that Launch House decided to split up with this law firm because it shows that they're reacting to it, even the appearance of conflict of interest. And they did recently kind of publish a full PowerPoint about what's next for Launch House. It's part of their apology tour. They aren't making their co-founders available for interview to me. So if you're listening, you should, because then I will have a, I will write about it. But until that happens, I don't think it's news to have a comeback without talking to the people leading the comeback. So what is the future for Launch House? Because I was going to ask that and you've teased it now. So yeah. now I'm doubly curious. I mean, it's, it's a bunch of things. And I linked the whole deck. I think like the two things that stood out to me during my scan was that the zero tolerance policy is going to cover a broader range of, quote, serious misconduct, and that they're working with the diversity, equity, and inclusion firm to audit and update its processes. Obviously, this is all like kind of statements, plans, promises. So, I mean, it's like it, it has to actually execute. And I, I don't know where we're at with that. Uh, Anita, in terms of reclaiming trust, how does that set of activities sit with you? On one hand, I'm like, look, I'm not sure exactly what else they could do, given that things got so bad and it's already out there in the public eye. But at the same time, I mean, companies can always be doing more than just hiring like a DEI consultant. I feel like that's an easy box to check. And you can just say, oh, like, we're working on the problem. It reminds me of, you know, the the, the US government, not to at them right now. But every time <laughs> there's like an issue, they're like, oh, we're going to put together a committee. We're going to fund some research. We're going to yes. look into the issue. We're going to generate some reports. And it's like, OK, I mean, you guys generated a report, but what are we actually doing about it? So I think it's just a matter of like holding uh, companies like Launch House accountable for actually implementing some of the changes. Which Anita, I know we were texting about watching Partner Track, and I don't yeah. know if you're subtweeting Partner Track too, which is like a Netflix show. One of the characters did a racist stand-up routine. The law firm did an investigation. A lot of people were, you know, recorded saying that this was racist, this is inappropriate, this person should be suspended and not on the Partner Track, and then. They made a formal recommendation to leadership and leadership. Sorry, this is a spoiler, uh, but leadership denied it. Um, I'm like, I don't care about your spoilers. Um, <laughs> no, anyways. no, it's such a good show. You should still watch it, even if that spoiled it for you. The the character development and drama is oh, great. It's so good. But it was just such a good reminder of even a fictional that is very realistic that like investigations can come with conclusions, but the actual implementation is a whole different thing. More to come on that. We still have our eyes on Launch House. Natasha is still, I think, well plugged into to what's going on there. So... We shall touch back when the report comes out, and then we'll see if it actually seems to have any substance. Yes. But in the meantime, let's scoot along back to some of my favorite things. Here's some words that I love. Sequoia, India, EdTech. And uh, Anita, this time around, we're not talking about Baiju's. We're not talking about even a new company. Instead, we're going back in time to what appears to be an early 
Sequoia India Investment? Yeah, so Sequoia India is really invested in the Indian edtech sector specifically. And it was one of the sectors that boomed, I mean, over the past couple of years, but it's also been one of the hardest hit by this market downturn. So it's really interesting to see like Sequoia is basically eyeing this $50 million investment in an edtech company called K12. The deal hasn't closed yet, but they're looking at putting in that amount of money. And this company has raised more than $75 million in previous rounds. And so K-12 apparently has also engaged with TPG and Excel, but ultimately reportedly decided to go with Sequoia to lead their round. It's a huge opportunity in the market, right? There's 300 million students in India, and they have these college entrance exams that are super competitive. So people take education really seriously. But at the same time, there's been some high profile struggles in the sector. And Baiju's, the one that Alex brought up, that was a really big deal. They cut 5% of their workforce recently. They also missed a deadline to file their like 2021 financials, which was pretty wild. And they're facing these allegations that they were, I mean, this is India's most valuable startup. Like, let me take a step back and say that. Baiju's is India's most valuable startup. So it makes sense why Sequoia sees potential in the sector. But at the same time, like one big storyline that's been playing out with them is that they apparently were using these sort of pressuring sales tactics to actually sell some of their software to families that couldn't afford it. Yep. So it's a tricky sector, but I will say about this particular deal, if it does close, K-12 is a bit different from Baiju's. It's actually a school management company. And I was looking at some of the bets in Sequoia's portfolio, Sequoia India, some of the edtech bets specifically, and it doesn't seem like there's any clear competitors to K-12, whereas Baiju's does like video content and sort of supplemental learning. And they have a couple of portfolio companies that also do that, like Unacademy, QMath, um, Doubtnut is another one. So K-12 might be a little bit of a safer play in the sense that it's not, it's not as aligned with some of these other edtech players that have found themselves in trouble. Totally. I mean, and I think about safe, I also think about like from a pure like VC perspective, a great time to be betting on ed tech. I'm sure it's a lot cheaper because Baiju is out of the halo effect over Indian startups and Indian ed tech startups specifically, which I'm sure drove up prices. Everyone wanted a bite of Indian ed tech when I would talk to US-based ed tech VCs. And so to see Sequoia's India branch get into it, I mean, it, it just feels like a pretty like offensive move. I, and I, I don't know if it's necessarily risky, but to your point. The uh, the halo effect is also a recently formed Swedish uh, melodic death metal supergroup. <laughs> How did you? Of course it is. <laughs> well, you said the ha- you said halo effect. And I was like, there we go. Uh, I know that. Where does that come from? So I just, I just pulled it up. And it is, in fact, Swedish, not Finnish. Sorry, I had that wrong in my head. Well, speaking of the halo effect, so Baijus was actually planning to go public. And they were going to do a SPAC earlier this year. Oh, that's right. And they were supposed to have a valuation that was above $40 billion. Ooh. Um, and the fundraise, so they they raised this month at a $22 billion valuation, which is flat from its prior round in March. So yeah. a little little over half of what they were supposed to do in the SPAC in terms of valuation. So it's definitely true what you said, Natasha, about like, this could be a good time to make these bets because it's cheaper. And it's like the South Asian, I saw in the story that Manish wrote, the tech industry in the South Asian market has cut nearly 5,000 jobs this year. It's like wow. just where the money is going and how it's going to be spent, I'm sure is different than what it was last time this company raised, which is worth noting. Yeah. I'm just curious about that round they raised at a flat valuation because mm. on one hand, it's great that they can still raise money. And on the other hand, flat, you wonder about the terms that were attached to that final tranche and if it was actually the same term set or just the same price. I'm not sure. I'm speculating, but like, I, I'm, I, I would love to read that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, reportedly, they were in the market for this round for, I think, more than four months, maybe maybe even like longer than that. So it took them a, a little while to actually put the funding together. Yeah. And uh, speaking of funding rounds that were puzzling over, ladies and gentlemen, apparently Be Real has raised $60 million in a Series B that was not announced uh, really publicly. 
Be Real, in case you didn't know, is a popular social service. Uh, it's a bit like Frontback, if you remember that application. Essentially, once a day, you get a ping, you pull out your phone, it takes a picture of what's in front of you and your dumb face, and then it shares that with your friends on Be Real. And it allows you to, quote, be real, unlike Instagram, because you can't do what are called plandeds. That's a new one. Planned candids. This I have thing. never heard that, Alex. I thought, I'm sorry. I thought I was being so savvy there by remembering <laughs> you that were. phrase. You just, t- like, that's, yeah, I like it. Planted. I thought I was going to wow you both. Uh, that flop. Anyways, be real though, not flopping. Super popular. Uh, the MAU growth is supposed to be around 20 million now, which is very impressive. And I, I'm just curious. I'm going to ask this totally honestly. Do you guys use it much? I know some people at TC do, and do you like it? I love it. Yeah, Natasha and I are keeping it real. Okay, Anita, though, you do not post to be real every day. Can we talk yeah, about that? Yeah, you're right. That? I don't. I, I don't. I don't. I notice that you don't post it every day. And that's my issue with Be Real is that I feel like it's a few loyal on my current list. It's a few loyal people, I being one of them. And I, I, I do like it. But I also think like I, I roast one of my friends about this all the time, which is like, you're being fake on Be Real because she'll wait till we all are, you know, going to the brewery or going to dinner and then open up. I thought you weren't allowed to wait. Oh, you are. And it, and it says you you posted a late Be Real. So like, it calls you out, but nobody really cares. No one really cares. And so it's, it's just funny to see how it's evolved a little bit. It's like it is kind of a version of an Instagram story. It's becoming one of them, I think. I, I don't know if you agree, Anina. I, I have a hot take, which okay. is that I think Be Real is overhyped. Whoa. Maybe it's something that just doesn't personally resonate with me as much, but like I could scroll TikTok for hours. Be Real, like I, it gets kind of boring. It's like, okay, like, you know, another photo of my friend sitting at home, you know, working from home in the middle of the day. Like, that's cool. I feel like the engagement I struggle with, right? Like you can only like look at what your friends are doing sitting at home for so long. But isn't it better to have episodic social media as opposed to new platforms where we can spend all of our time? I guess if we think about their incentives as a business long term, like they probably want people on the app throughout the day, or if they're on the app only once a day, like for them to be super engaged during that once a day. And I do find myself kind of going only after I take a picture for a few seconds and then closing it. And so maybe maybe that's not how all the activity is. But when I hear that they have a lot of daily active users, I don't know how active those daily users are. I mean, probably pretty, pretty active because... I just can't you, imagine being that active, right? Well, I, I guess I'm more thinking of like their MAU to DAU ratio is probably very strong mm. compared to other social services, TikTok aside, and maybe the Facebook Big Blue app. But I, I just, I wonder if it's that bad that they don't use it that much in terms of total time. It will limit ad revenue possibly because you have fewer time with eyeballs, so probably less total income. But I mean, people aren't trying to build the next Instagram yeah. per se because we already have it and people are already a little bit over it because it ended up becoming yet another quasi super app that ended up having no specific soul. And be real, to Anita's point, does seem to have a specific different uh, usage pattern and maybe that's a strength. I totally see the value prop behind it. And I see the idea behind it in terms of it being different from the apps that we all already use. But I just wonder if maybe like, at least for me, I feel like my brain is too broken already to really be be a frequent be real user. Like I need that constant engagement. I need those dopamine hits. And like, maybe that's my problem. But I'm thinking about when I interviewed Clubhouse's co-founder, Paul Davison last week, and he said that it's really hard to invent a new habit. That includes social audio, but I think it also includes authenticity with social media. A lot of people say that they want it. I mean, none of us are consumer reporters, so like I'll asterisk that, but I'm someone who loves authenticity. I love Twitter. It's my favorite one because I think that that's a little bit more stream of consciousness than filters. At the same time, I don't know if like Be Real is the perfect one for me. But Twitter is also a niche social network, right? Like yeah. The difference between Twitter and TikTok, apart from the, the medium of content, the discrete unit of substance, it's just a very different experience in terms of how we approach it. So. 
like TikTok, I think to Anita's point is broad. Everyone can use it. It will spoon feed you some form of moving video of whatever it is you find interesting. Twitter is much harder to use. I've trained my algo so well on TikTok. Like it knows exactly <laughs> what to deliver to me. So I still only follow my friend Erin. And so all I get is stuff that she does and then stuff and from people like her. So it's a very tuned experience. But yeah, I just, I feel like TikTok has already done that thing. And so everyone seems to be chasing to, to occupy the same seat. And I like that B-Real is trying to add more chairs to the table. It stands out. But we got to scoot along. We got a lot to go over. I don't know if you've uh, picked up on this lately, but uh, Elon Musk, a South African entrepreneur, is buying a social media company. Have you heard about this? What? (laughs) Cries in the distance, runs away. This is the reason I'm off tomorrow. Let's just say that. (laughs) Okay. um, The news is that uh, Twitter might not undergo as many layoffs as we thought. This is something that we learned on Thursday. As of Wednesday, when we put together the script originally, we were expecting Elon to lay off around three quarters or up to three quarters of Twitter staff. And it turns out via him dropping by the office, that's not going to be the case. So uh, 70%, 30%, I have no idea. But the context here has dramatically changed. Um, And I'll add one more thing before I get your feedback. But the company is going to be taking on presumably quite a lot of debt in this transaction, which means that it needs to generate more cash to service that debt. One way to generate more free cash flow is to fire people. Uh, at least in the short term. So Anita, let's start with you. Vibes on the Elon axe swinging that may or may not come. The vibes are really off. Like I'm super confused. I I guess he said that he's just kidding, not going to lay off 75% of the staff after all. But either way, I mean, this is just really awful having your whole workforce of the social media platform sort of hanging in limbo and wondering what, like, what the hell is going to happen next. Right. I, and it's also like Twitter unlike some other social media platforms, it has always had a smaller staff. So cutting 75% of people makes a bigger dent here than in other places. It would have impacted around 5,600 employees and they only have 7,500. And I don't know, I just think about that too. Is like One thing I've always thought about is like for how important Twitter is to the world, it doesn't have that many employees. So we'll see. Even if he doesn't lay those people off, there's going to be churn in many ways. We'll see over the next few months. There is even when the leader isn't that controversial. So add in the controversy, add in the fact that Twitter has a very political and thoughtful staff. And I think we're going to see a lot of change on the personnel front. See, I was thinking, Alex, when you said the thing about layoffs and that being an easy way to generate short-term cash flow, like surely there has to be other ways for Twitter to monetize. Like this isn't a private equity backed, like late stage company where they have to trim the fat or anything. Not that I'm even justifying layoffs in that situation. I just think that like, you know, for, for this social network that should be growing fast, should have a lot of potential has a lot of different ways they could perhaps monetize. Like, why is it that layoffs is the first thing that that these investors are jumping to? It kind of reminds me of all the discourse around Toys R Us when that deal fell through. Like, after a certain point, if you keep slashing staff, you have to do it in a smart way. Otherwise, the people who actually are fueling your growth are not going to be there anymore. Yeah. Uh, I was curious if we were going to end up here. <laughs> <laughs> you know me trying to talk about private equity. <laughs> okay, so the reason why I picked the private equity example is just because of the, the, the debt component. And often when a private, so a private equity firm will raise a bunch of debt, use that debt to buy a company, attach that debt to the company, not to themselves, and then make the company pay for the debt that they added to it so they could buy it. So they essentially get to buy it for free. And then when they take it public, uh, the company gets to keep the debt and they get paid twice. Yeah. Uh, private equity, by the way, if that sounds illegal, it's not. It's, uh, it's somehow legal. Somehow. Uh, somehow. I mean, I get why it's legal, but like, I'm always kind of like, y'all know this is sh- right? Sounds a little too good to be true sometimes. You're just ruining companies so you can take money out for yourself. Congratulations. Especially when there's a special dividend. I love that. 
No, Alex, it's it's called operational improvements. Okay, please. <laughs> oh, right. I love having a former investment banker on the show. <laughs> I love being levered to the gills. That engenders operational excellence, I think, especially in a rising interest rate environment. Um, anyways, why I cut staff first? Uh, the, the gist is I think that Elon and a lot of folks that seem to be of a same uh, kind of in- intellectual and political mindset think that tech companies are full of people who don't do anything and that they can fire everybody and it doesn't matter. I, I think this is because they over-index on the great man theory, essentially. Say more about the great man theory. The great man theory is the favorite geopolitical viewpoint of all men over the age of 70. Mm. And it's that single individuals can greatly change the course of history. And that uh, this is why people will fall in love with like Patton and uh, Buffett and so forth. I, I, having worked at corporations, startups, big and small, run teams, been part of teams, I'm, I'm a much bigger believer in the go further as a group <laughs> aspect of things. Same. But if you do think that individuals are the ones that enact most of the change in the world, then the support staff are fungible and therefore cuttable and therefore expendable and therefore essentially an option towards more free cash flow. I want to end with this section a little bit with talking about this letter that kind of, I guess it fits really well into this theory because it's a it's a response to it. It's like saying it's not as simple as one individual is the winner. So employees wrote a letter to Elon Musk, the board of directors and general staff, and basically said that this layoff will hurt Twitter's ability to serve the public conversation. Quote, a threat of this magnitude is reckless, undermines our users and customers' trust in our platform, and is a transparent act of worker intimidation. And I think that it's, I mean, it's such a powerful letter. I'm sure we'll link it in our show notes. I think it's important to read. We don't know how, too many details about it, but I do feel like a little bit like this, this is the theme I was talking about last week where it's like reputation matters and the power of the employee is really important right now. And I think it's been interesting to watch that letter get mocked by a lot of uh, very wealthy people yeah. arguing that, you know, these people are, are more activists than employees and blah, 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 blah. Oh man, someone's out of touch. Yeah, I mean, you can decide who it is in this particular scenario, but uh, if I was buying a company and I was overpaying 3x for it, given current market norms, I might not attack the people that are currently making the servers blink. I think that's why him walking in with like holding a sink just like didn't sit right with me. The news that he is kind of reversing this rumor or whatever, that the 75% layoffs aren't going to happen. That happened after he walked in with a sink. And I just think that like, just morale wise, it's an exhausting place to be right now. I not a Twitter employee. I don't know what the exact temperature is. I'm glad I'm not one right now, to be quite honest. Yeah, it's just, it seems like I'm sure there's a lot of disagreement internally. Even I mean, it's just a spectrum of emotions. And I'm sad I'm not in SF or else I would just go camp out in their cafe and, and try and, I don't know, talk to some of them. Well, someone please let me into Twitter HQ again. Thank you. I know the last time I was there, we drank a whole bottle of Jameson, but... <laughs> We're going to move on, though. No more Elon Musk for the rest of the show. Yay. Pretty sure about that. If we don't live up to that, we owe you a Coke. All right. Uh, Anita, Apple and the App Store and rules of the walled garden and rent seeking off of payments is, is a topic that we've touched on on the show so many times. This time, however, crypto has entered the conversation. It has, though I regret to inform you that Elon Musk is actually still related to this somehow because oh no. the, the new Apple rules are going to affect platforms like Twitter as well. So Apple issued a bunch of new guidelines for developers, and a lot of them have to do with NFTs, but they've also issued some new guidance around social media boosts and like promotional content, which I'll get into in a second. But the NFT stuff, because I'm a crypto gal, uh, check me out on Chain Reaction, TechCrunch Crypto Podcast. It's a great Woo. time. Woo uh, shameless plug. But anyway, no. So Apple issued these new guidelines. And basically, Apple has not really said anything official about NFTs or crypto in the past. For every in-app purchase, the Apple store takes a 30% fee. Basically, anytime you transact in the app, if you buy or sell something, Apple gets a 30% cut of it. And so they came out and said this week that that will actually apply to NFTs as well. 
And all NFTs have to be purchased through Apple's in-app payment system. So if an exchange like an OpenSea, for example, wants to give people the functionality to be able to buy and sell NFTs on mobile, then they have to succumb to Apple's, essentially people in crypto are calling it a 30% tax. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that they said is that NFTs cannot have token gated or exclusive benefits on mobile because people were using that as a workaround to having to use the Apple in-app payment system. Like people in crypto and crypto companies and apps that have iOS mobile apps are trying to find any way that they can to bypass that 30% tax. Do do you feel like this is going to hurt innovation, specifically the one that will see show up on the app store or are they kind of swallowing the 30%? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, the thing is, like, Apple really cares about this. And the reason they've come out and basically had these rules apply to NFTs is because 60 to 70% of their app store revenue comes from gaming. And gaming is a big growth catalyst for Web3 and for NFTs in particular. Whoa! So it's, it's really not just like crypto that's, that's being affected by these new rules. It's like gaming companies. And I do think it will stifle innovation. I, I think that's kind of the point, though. Call it time out. We're going back. <laughs> okay, going okay, back okay, okay. Seconds. Rewind, rewind. Gaming is a huge catalyst for Web3. <laughs> I mean, people say that. People say that, right? People like, are hoping that that becomes true. That's very different. That's totally fair. I don't necessarily believe that like NFTs are the future of gaming, but I think that this is a defensive move from Apple to keep everything on their ecosystem and on their platform. Agreed. So smart of them. Totally agree with that. I, I'm just, there's this vibe of in, in the crypto world and I'm not pointing fingers at you, Anita. I'm pointing fingers at the whole planet. That's fair. To take hoped for things and then kind of scoot the goalposts forward and be like, well, it's obviously going to be huge. Andreessen. <laughs> so the, the thing with hype in crypto and Web3 is that it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes, which is why I think Apple's taking it seriously. Like if it does end yeah. up being true that NFT gaming becomes a big thing because there's so much money being poured into it, you know, regardless of user demand, like we, we know from Uber and we know from all these startups that you can sort of manufacture user demand. That is so real. That is so real. I mean, and I, I know last week when you were interviewing Solana's founder, co-founder. Yeah. Anatoly Yakovenko. Yes, totally. He mentioned the interest in building a Solana phone and you talked about Apple, which I, it's kind of great timing. How have his comments aged? since this happened. Yeah, well, I think they've actually aged pretty well because he was sort of talking about how building a Solana Web3 phone is the Web3 world's response to Apple and Google basically cracking down and taking this huge fee. But the question remains like, can Solana build this crypto phone and are crypto users going to do this completely separately? Because so many people who have the money to buy NFTs, most of the target market are wealthy people who happen to own iPhones. Mm-hmm. Yep. So at the end of the day, if, a, if an NFT exchange or a crypto company wants to make money, and they want to onboard new users, forgive me for using that term, but that's like, you know, the the way it's said in crypto, like if they want to do that, they basically can't ignore mobile, right? That's how most of these transactions happen. And they want to get these iPhone owners. So they might have to just suck it up and pay that 30% fee to Apple. Okay, but then how how does that work? Because one of the best parts of OpenSea, especially back when we were looking at its numbers in the January, February timeframe, when NFTs were having their last major peak, was that they took a two and a half percent cut, which I thought was great. I mean, that seemed like a perhaps defensible fee for running a marketplace and handling the transactions and building a market and so forth. Uh, if Apple's taking a 30% cut, if I buy an NFT, do I, the buyer, pay 30% plus 2.5% or does the seller of the NFT eat the 30% tax? That's not clear to me. I think it's still an open question. I think either it would end up uh, eating into these uh, NFT exchanges profits or it would be passed on to the buyers. The other question that I have that I think is still outstanding for a lot of people is that NFTs, like the whole point is sort of this dynamic real-time pricing 
which doesn't exactly work for in-app app store purchases. Like you kind of have to set a price point for an item before you actually sell it. So I think this is a big blow to NFTs on mobile. And Apple's sort of saying like, hey, if you guys want iPhone users, then you're going to have to play by our rules. And that basically challenges the very core ethos of, of crypto and of NFTs in the first place. Oh, God, do we need a third smartphone brand or OS? <laughs> the like, Solana I mean, Saga phone. No, not, not that. <laughs> something else. So, so, something that plays nice. Like I, th- I think the downside is these phones, Android and iOS, became more open over time. Because if you recall, the iPhone launched without third-party apps and then added an app store. Yeah. And um, now it, it seems like Google and Apple have realized that they can generate enormous incomes from these app stores. And so they, they're, they're building the walls taller. And I think now, given that every single sector from online dating to social networking to crypto, everyone's very peevish about these enormous fees that Apple is apparently just wedded to. I really wish there was more competition. I do want to bring everything full circle here about Apple because the one thing is like with with Google and with Android, the Solana Saga phone is an Android phone. And the, the Play Store does take a fee on Google, but at the end of the day on an Android, you can still sort of jailbreak it and install these external third-party apps. The the benefit of buying an app through the Play Store is like they say it's secured, it's verified, they vetted it. It's not going to like fuck up your phone. But at the same <laughs> time, you still have the freedom to do what you want with the device. And on the iPhone, you you totally don't. But the thing that always stands out to me when I think about Apple is like regardless of their, you know, quasi potentially monopolistic practices, regardless of their super high fees, at the end of the day, everybody wants an iPhone. Like people use it. People love the product. And it's 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 amazing to me, like how much we as a society are willing to take from Apple. I, I think the 30% number I've heard so many times this year has been the subject of debate so many times this year that I wonder if like they can't even take it back because they've gone so deep into committing to this number. I mean, I, I'll tell you, Apple, no one will be mad at you if you give up. Like no one's going to be like, we're not going to roast you if you set back. You know, you know what, Apple? There may come a time in which you have enough wealth. Maybe. Maybe once. <laughs> we have one last topic to get to. But China, I'm going to be really brief about this. Did you guys pay attention to the recent Chinese Communist Party every five year big meeting? No, do tell. Every five years, the Chinese Communist Party's leadership comes together. They have a big thing and they shuffle the leadership and talk about priorities and set plans and so forth. Uh, the same person who was in charge is still in charge for another five years, breaking norms. And what matters is that the kind of inner circle of the Communist Party leadership saw a reduction in kind of pro-market reformist folks and more people brought on that were a bit more in tune with Xi Jinping's ideology. And markets reacted to this by going, no, and selling off frantically on Monday. There's been some recovery since, but a huge negative signal. And I was just curious you know, what does that mean for Chinese startups? Yeah. Because do you guys remember back in like 2018 when Chinese venture capital was like, Natasha, you were at Crunchbase News, I think back then, like it was bigger than like the US market for a, for a quarter there. It was, the, yeah, it was insane. And it was something that like, I feel like I haven't even seen anything come close to it. Like Latin America is booming, but even its boom was nowhere close to China's boom for, for many reasons. And so it's fall, China's fall from grace has been even more startling to see just because of how hyped things were at that point. And your story put it in a number framework, which I think really hit home for me, just how much things have changed. Yeah. So the the numbers are in Q3 of this year, per CB Insights, Chinese startups raised about $8.5 billion. That's down from the peak of $27.7 billion set in, I think it was Q4-21 uh, in absolute dollar terms. And then my thought is, given these sequential declines we've seen in the Chinese startup scene, maybe the recent sell-off is going to make things even harder. And if that happens, we're going to be really seeing Chinese private capital to startups retreat. And I, you know, we're talking a lot in the in the broader political context about a tech war. 
or some sort of like, you know, challenge of the empires or whatever. And I just wonder how China can try to have technological dominance when its private sector is, is imploding as it appears to be. Well, my question to you, Alex, is like, how much worse is this compared to other regions globally? Like tech is kind of getting hit hard all over the world. Like is China doing significantly worse than other countries' tech sectors? It was doing fractionally worse than other countries' tech sectors, measuring from recent venture capital peaks in raw dollar terms down to Q3 results. But I don't think anyone has sold off as hard as China has since. So my vibe is that they were already lagging, throw this on top. Adding more negative sentiment to the Chinese economy is a bit like uh, kicking a corpse at this point, but it seems to be what's happened. So I'm just very curious to see what this does to Q4 numbers. And if we kind of start putting China instead of the number two-ish venture market to more like third or fourth, which is really just not where we thought things were going five years ago. It still continues to like surprise me. And we in your story, you noted that the American share prices of Chinese companies are quite down. So we saw Alibaba, Baidu, Pinduoduo, and the NASDAQ Golden Dragon China Index are all down. So it's not just kind of the startups that are going to be facing it. It all starts at the top. It starts everywhere. It's all around right now. As someone once said, the fish rots from the head. I'll believe that. One more question for you, Alex. Why do you think that this is happening in China specifically? Like, what's the sort of linkage to what's going on with the Communist Party meeting? Oh, so if you go back uh, one or two years to the time in which Ant Financial had its IPO um, scuppered, that was, uh, I think it was actually a decision made by Xi Jinping. I think he made that call. If I recall- Didn't Jack Ma disappear for like- for a minute, and everyone was like, "Where is he?" Jack Ma disappeared for a, for a while. Yeah, and like, like a long was, minute. <laughs> it was like a, a quarter hour of minutes if we use minute in this uh, modern parlance. And then there was also the edtech crackdown. There was the crackdown on AI and uh, platform companies, and there was some uh, intelligent anti anti competitive regulation that came out as part of this. But mostly, it was a crackdown on private enterprise. And the current leader of China is moving the emphasis of the economy away from the private sector towards the state sector none of which bodes well for business results. And so to see his power not just retained, but enhanced and stabilized even more by the this, this shakeup of his essentially cabinet um, means that the hope that people had that things would get easier for business was bullshit and that it's going to get harder for business. Everyone was like, deuces, we're not going to buy these stocks. Elegant explanation. Do people still say deuces? <laughs> that might be a slightly archaic phrase. Uh, anyways, Natasha, we are so over time. We have to stop talking. Uh, equity code for TC Plus. We're back on Monday. Anything else that I'm missing? We're back on Halloween. Don't forget that. Ooh, that's right. It'll be a lot of spooky puns. I'm going to like just add a bunch of promises to Alex Monday show to-do list. Uh, no, please. And uh, that way I can let everyone down all at once and get it over with, you know? Here's to hoping the markets aren't too scary. <laughs> Thank you again, Anita, for joining Equity. Everyone else, follow us at EquityPod on Twitter, and we will see you on Halloween. Bye. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters Natasha Mascarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.